Thank you very much. Um, so I'm going to be talking about some new research that I've been working on with my colleague Gemma Romain, who's here, um, that we started in January. It's all um, a bit new, so I am going to be reading my notes, but if um, there's things that you're not clear about or I'm talking too quickly or whatever it might be, please put up your hand and I will try and deal with um, any comments. But I've planned it so there'll be time for questions at the end. So that's the plan um, for today. On the 12th of September, 1926, Maria Davis sat down at her home at 12 Featherston Building in Hoburn, not far from here, to write a letter. Her letter is a relatively short piece of fan mail addressed to one of the most popular entertainers of the age, the African-American actress and singer, Florence Mills. A Negro anthology edited by Nancy Cunard and published in London in 1934 carried a profile of Mills written by her husband, the comedian U.S. Thompson, under the section Negro Stars. And although no recordings of Florence Mills' performances survive, she's considered one of the leading performers of the Jazz Age and the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. So according to her husband's profile, Mills, who appears in the picture on the right, was born in Washington, D.C. on the 25th of January, 1895, and was performing in theatres from the age of four. But forced to leave the stage in order to attend school, her family later moved to New York, where she, they formed an act. Um, she formed an act with her sisters. But she also performed on stage alone in, in theatres in and around New York. She worked hard, given this is um, you know, a segregated time, she worked hard to become um, a performer. But her major role, her first major role came when she acted as a replacement lead in the hit musical Shuffle Away. In, that was in 1921. In 1923, she came to London for the first time with a show called Dover Street to Dixie, and it had a successful run. But it was her starring role in Blackbirds, first performed in Harlem, but with long runs in Paris and, and London together for 11 months in 1926 that made her a massive star in Britain. Mills was a celebrity performer, but she was an also an outspoken advocate of African-American and black people's civil rights. Growing up in the United States, she was, not surprisingly, regularly a victim of racial prejudice and the politics of white supremacy. But these were also problems that she faced in Britain. The news that an all-black cast was going to be performing in London in 1923 outraged the entertainment unions, who complained to the London County Council and to the press. And the compromise that the authorities settled on reflects the hardening racial prejudice of the colour bar that was operating in Britain at the time. Mills and her colleagues did perform, but the union successfully insisted that an all-white British cast performed in the first half, with the show and Mills and the rest of her African-American colleagues cast in the second. When Mills returned with the Blackbirds in 1926, the protests continued. The union stance was criticised now in some parts of the press, and one reporter pointed out that it was not an issue of nationality that the unions had a problem with. There was no opposition to German or Austrian artists or American artists if they were from the United States, if they were white. 
As the reporter observed, the objection, therefore, must have its roots in the performer's colour. What has really happened is that the VAF, which was the Variety Actors Federation, has got black fever and got it badly. The Negro, because he is a Negro, must be banned. This certainly does not come very well from a country that was the first to abolish Negro slavery. But with the Blackbirds show, Blackbirds mania gripped London, Blackbirds parties were held, and the performers were invited to socialise with high society. It was said that the Prince of Wales had seen the show more than 20 times. But the idea that Britain should not be a place that did not succumb to racial prejudice because of its history of abolition, although it wasn't the first to abolish slavery, that's a different story, it wasn't an argument that was won. Evelyn Waugh, for one, was certainly resentful of the fashionable success and popularity of the Blackbirds. As Bill Egan has pointed out in his work on Florence Mills, the writer Anthony Powell recalled that when issuing an invitation, guests for guests, Waugh would remind them that this isn't a party, there won't be a black man. So given the pressures from fellow white actors on her right to perform, it is unsurprising that Mills had a keen awareness of the social problems of life in London and that she spoke out on racial issues, promoting the work of the National Association of the Advancement of Coloured Peoples, better known as the NAACP, during her time here. But Mills also held a deep concern about the poor and the marginalised. During her time in London, when she, she performed along with the Blackbirds cast in special performances for wounded servicemen, which is where the newspaper clipping on the left comes from, and donated her time for charity performances, gener generating funds for the Children's Hospital in Hackney, and she was also a tree for traction at a cherry concert in aid of North London Jewish schools. And according to a newspaper report of that event, her rendering of the famous Jewish chant, Eli, Eli, was said by a rabbi present to be the most wonderful and expressive he had ever heard. And after her death, it became known that, her, that after her performances, once the theatre was closed, Mills would be driven by her chauffeur to the East End, visiting several hospitals and giving away gifts after which the car would head back west to the embankment to enable her driver to distribute money to those sleeping rough by the river. And Mills's stance on racial issues made her a great asset to black communities living in Britain, be they poor working people, students, or her fellow celebrity friends from the arts. In 1919, a new club, the Coterie of Friends, was started by a small group of students with the object of creating a social space where, to quote, serious-minded people of colour could frequently meet, debate, discuss, and socialise. Although dormant for the 12 months where the programme at the bottom um, comes from, which was an event in May 1923, because of a number of their core members had um, left London, they still claim to credit for having given some of the foremost functions for the Negro world in London as they saw it. The group's original members who founded the club in the spring of 1919, perhaps as a personal response to the violent race riots that were erupting around the world and across Britain that year, were all men. Edmund Thornton Jenkins, a Charleston-born musician who had studied composition at the Royal Academy of Music from 1920 to 21, but was also no stranger to jazz. 
Harold Piper, born in Montserrat, a member of the Pharmaceutical Society, Dr. Felix Hiram Harry Leakham, as he was known, a Trinidadian doctor, and then Randall H. Lockhart from Martinique, who's in London to study law. For the relaunch party, which this programme is for, held on the 13th of May 1923, Florence Mills topped the list of guests of honour, along with James P. Johnson and his orchestra, who'd be taking charge of the music, as well as members of the Indian, West Indian cricket team. When the Blackbirds went on tour, after playing many of the major cities in Britain, the strenuous schedule took a heavy toll on Mills. By now, she'd been performing constantly for five years, never missing a performance. And although she went to Germany to try and recuperate, um, she simply got worse and had to return to the United States. She undertook an operation, which um, didn't help her get better. In fact, it proved fatal. And on the 1st of November, 1927, aged only 31, she died. Her funeral is remembered as one of the most spectacular in Harlem. Over 5,000 people attended her funeral in the heart of black America, and it's thought up to 100,000 people lined the surrounding streets. And well known for her political support for black and working class communities, Mills's time in London became an inspiring cultural memory. When the feminist and Caribbean activist Amy Ashwood Garvey and her partner, the playwright Sam Manning, who had served in the British West Indies during the First World War, when the pair of them opened a club in London during the 1930s, they called it the Florence Mills Club. Specialising in Caribbean food and music, because Manning was a well-known calypso and jazz musician, the club became a new coterie of friends, a gathering place for African and West Indian activists and students, although exactly where it was, we're not yet sure. So Maria Davis's letter to Mills, written in Hoban in 1926, which I will come back to, is now housed in the archives of the Schoenberg Institute in Harlem, a branch of the New York Public Library vital to the research of the African diaspora where Gemma and I visited earlier this year. And this is Gemma, who, Gemma Remain, who's my colleague on the project with me, in the archives in the Schoenberg. And Florence Mills will probably be a major character in our AHRC-funded research project, Drawing Over the Colour Line, which examines the art world in the context of the making of cosmopolitan identities in London between the wars. And although hers, Florence Mills, that is, her story is clearly unique and exceptional, her time in London does illustrate a number of our project's themes. The Harlem Renaissance in New York, I'm sure many of you will have heard about. It's a time when African-Americans created a revolution in music, art, and literature, not only in Harlem and New York, but across the United States. And it's a well-established subject of critical analysis for many interested in cultural politics, the evolution of music, literature, the arts, and the general history of the United States. These themes have been joined by historical examinations of the black presence in Paris, particularly in the 1920s, but also now increasingly by research across Europe, such as Amsterdam, where an examination of new art movements in the city was beautifully illustrated in a, an exhibition um, held in Amsterdam in 2008 called Black is Beautiful. And the image on the left was shown as part of that during the exhibition. But although, like New York and Paris, interwar London played host to the meetings of many intellectuals, students and workers in the realms of anti-colonial, nationalist and pan-African politics, to name just a few examples, a similar interrogation of the relationships between art, 
political thought, literature and identity in London has yet to be undertaken, and that's what we hope to be doing. Our project has come out of a pilot project that Gemma undertook well, and completed in 2008. And she was asked to look in the UCL Slade archives, the Slade School of Fine Art here at UCL, and to see what kind of representations of black and minority ethnic people in its broadest sense, our broadest understanding, could be found in it. And some of you might have picked up some postcards of some of the images that came out of that research. Her work um, went back right to the beginning of the collection, which includes sort of um, very old prints, but also the, some of the thousands of pieces of artwork that the collection has. Although I think we'd admit that it was very much a kind of scratching of the surface, the collections that are there. And that's kind of what our project has, has grown upon. But although I'm going to be focusing today mostly on people of African descent, I wanted to emphasize that our project is also interested in people from the Asian diaspora. And we'll be typically trying to, you can't see too clearly in this picture, but this is a picture of Slade students here at UCL from 1938. And among them are five Indian students that we know were studying here at the time. They seem to be particularly interested in stage design and sculpture. Those are the modules they're particularly taking, although I doubt they were called modules then. But um, we're trying to find out more about them and particularly um, trying to locate the work they produced. So if for any chance you might know who they are, do please let us know. But reflecting back on the material that Gemma had pulled out from the Slade collection, it seemed clear to us that a greater diversity of models were being used more often by the Slade during the 1920s and 1930s. Was this an influence of the Harlem Renaissance manifest in London? And if so, would we be able to use the works of art by students to recover the lives of African and Asian diasporas, people of the diaspora living in London? We had a sense that looking at artists' models would provide us with an opportunity to examine the lives of more ordinary people, people who were working as studio life models, probably to supplement their incomes in other kind of ordinary jobs. So these are two of the, the images um, from the UCL collection. Of course, UCL isn't the only art school in London, so perhaps it would be possible to replicate this across the other art schools. So in addition to examining the archives of the UCL Slade School of Fine Art, we're hoping to look at the Royal College of Art, St John's Wood Art School, and many of the London County Council Authority-run schools. And here are just some examples of people that we know that studied in, in some of those um, institutions. Of course, we realise that we're not going to, well, we realise now that we're not going to be able to get to all these places this time, and certainly not in the depth that we would like. So I think this is probably going to be a, a project that gets built up, because of course, we're also particularly interested in people who didn't necessarily go to formal classes, people who might have been part of um, working class institutes, people who might have done one-off um, courses just for their own sort of pleasure, not necessarily people who were in formal education, and quite how we're going to reach into those archives, we still need to figure that out. And even something like the Slade Archive, which is sort of so brilliantly put together, has its limitations. So the, the Slade collection of, of paintings, as we might call it generally, is actually a collection of prize-winning art. 
So people or students who did exceptionally good work and won prizes were asked to donate their work and keep it in the college collection, which amazingly, um, many of them did and, and still do. So there's this amazing sort of realm of art. But it's very particular, it's fine art, there's not much photography, for example. So we're trying to think about how we might access some photographic archives and places where people might have think be thinking about photography more as an art form at this time. But of course, as these studio portraits of students working in the Slade archive remind us that aside from prize-winning students, there were lots of other people painting in a studio at the same time. So one of the things we're hoping to do is maybe find ways of uncovering other people's representations, um, considered not as good as their, as their prize-winning colleagues, but might be in personal archives still, because of course not all of the people who are students here or at other colleges become famous. For all sorts of reasons, people's artwork might not be known in the public domain. So we're trying to think about how we can um, bring some of those images back to life. But our project is not just for the recovery of artworks or for biographical recovery. So in this case, it's, you know, who are these two men? Where were they from? Where did they live? What did they do when they weren't sitting in front of art students? Although I have to say these two particular photographs um, were taken rather later than, um, than the work that we're doing. But what we want to try and examine is the space of the art studio. So spaces like this as a place of cultural exchange. So we're trying to think about how the art studio, cafes, um, other places of education were places where people were black and white and brown, as we might want to call it, came together for purposes of cultural exchange, but also things that may have then turned into personal relationships and particularly interesting to us, political relationships. So these spaces include places like the Slade Studios, but also meeting places in Soho, such as the Florence Mills Club, um, opened by Amy Ashwood Garvey and Sam Manning, and also the Shim Sham Club, which is opened in Soho in 1935 on 37 Wardour Street. And we know at the Shim Sham Club, the undercover policemen watched and reported on the cosmopolitan crowds that visited there, black and white, gay and straight. They listened to black musicians who played with and learned from American and Caribbean musicians, and who made friends with the Jewish radicals who visited the club. And our project is aiming to map not only the, the, the black and brown people and who were part of the political cosmopolitan moment, but of course the, the white radicals, whether they Jewish radicals, anti-fascists, communists, or ordinary working class people who were also part of this cosmopolitan moment, if we can call it that, in London at the time. So on the 14th of May 1923, a man somewhere in Blighty, as he called it, wrote another of those thousands of fan mail letters that Florence Mills received over her career. Among the many letters that she received from fans in the United States or Europe are ones from British men and women that give us, we would argue, a unique insight into individual reflections on race and performance and desire here in Britain during the 1920s. Mills received an extraordinary range of letters. Some were simple requests for letter or letters of thanks for her participation in charity performances, such as the one in aid of London Jewish schools, or the receipt, as you saw earlier, for a children's hospital. But also, in, I think, interesting, a number of the letters reflect a sense of ownership or imagined intimacy with celebrities that we tend to associate with current popular culture. 
So, for example, one gentleman who had previously lived in Africa, which, where he added he had been very happy, he wrote to Mills asking, um, in a manner which he hoped would not be considered too presumptive, if she would care to be shown some of England's pretty and historical places from the sidecar of his motorcycle. And another perhaps unlikely request came from Irene Castle, who cabled Mills at the Pavilion Theatre, which is where the Blackbirds performance played, to ask if she could borrow the costume Mills had worn on her first time on a London stage, because Castle wanted it for a fancy dress party. She was planning to impersonate Mills at a party being held by Lady Cunard, presumably Nancy Cunard, later that night. But the man who wrote to Mills on the 14th of May 1923, before the Blackbird mania, from somewhere in Blighty, did not make a request of Mills for her time or for an item of clothing. He wrote simply to express his admiration. He believed that all of London would be brought to heel with Dover Street to Dixie, which was the first show she came with. Alongside his accurate prediction of her success, he offered his own advice warning that she must try not to let success develop her pride, for pride would hide her natural charm. He implored her to be earnest and true to herself, for then, he argued, you will reach the hearts of the real white men. Through all keeping natural and being as good as you can, in fact, be a woman, and you will be the master of man. He did not assume that Mills would read his letter and reflected that he would probably think, I'm strange in the head. I don't suppose we will ever meet, he mused, not even in good old Dover Street, but I will dream of you, my photo Dixie. He wished her luck when she returned a millionaire to Dixie and signed off a sincere admirer, a white poor man. And just on the side, this picture of Mills is by the Indian artist Mukul Day. And although produced in 1923, Day exhibited the portrait in 1927 from his studio in Knightsbridge. And at the time, the Times argued that as a rule, for obvious reasons, studio exhibitions have to be ignored. But in the case of Mr. Mickle Day, the rule can be stretched. Partly it's because of the style of engraving that he used that was rather unusual, partly because he was relatively famous, he had done some frescoes for the British Museum. But they also highlighted that as an engraver with the dry point, Mr. McCalday retains his interest in, to quote, native subjects. So this picture of, that he did of Florence Mills is for us a, a representation of a key moment of cultural exchange between two artists and political activists, and we're hoping to explore it in rather more detail as the project goes on. The date of Millicent Briggs's letter to um, Florence Mills is not recorded, but as she refers to Mills as my dear bluebird, it seems likely that she sent it during Mills's second stint in London during the Blackbird Review. One of the songs Mills sang on stage went, never had no happiness, never felt no one's cares. I'm just a lonesome bit of humanity born on a Friday, I guess. If the sun forgets no one, why don't it shine on me? I'm a little blackbird looking for a bluebird too. I'm a little blackbird looking for a bluebird was Mills' signature song, and Millicent was picking up on this in her letter. Briggs's letter was one of thanks for Mills had just about crowned Briggs's happiness by sending her a photograph. Now an important personal possession, Briggs had been forced to part with the photograph for a fortnight so it could be copied and coloured. Briggs reveals to us later readers of the letter that she and Mills had never actually met, for she hadn't been near enough to see Mills exactly, to know her flesh intimately, 
but she remained confident that she'd got her instructions to the colorist right. But she declared, if I don't get the coloring right, I'll let you shoot me. Briggs adored Mills and argued that it was not simply because she was famous. Sure that if I'd seen you walking along the street and didn't know who you were, I'd have fell for you just the same. In this opportunity to discuss emotions she'd perhaps never revealed to anyone else, Briggs confessed that, I've got it bad. I've actually fallen in love with another woman. She had to wait until Saturday before she saw Mills again, perhaps in a performance or in her return photograph, reflecting that, I wish I could be your shadow, then you'd never be out of my sight. But perhaps realizing she was starting to sound slightly obsessive, Briggs brought her letter to a close in case she went off the deep end. Wishing Mills something better than fame, happiness, she remained always your slave, Millicent Briggs. The racial and class lines present in a sincere admirer's description of himself as a white poor man and the reversal of racial history contained in Briggs's declaration to remain always Mills's slave is also present in Maria Davis's letter written to Mills from Hoban, which I mentioned at the start of this talk. Unlike her fellow poor white man, Davis had not only seen Mills in a photograph, she had seen her in the flesh, in real life, and was moved to write to Mills the day after she had seen a Blackbird's performance. As she explained to Mills in 1926, while watching the Blackbird show the night before, she felt that none among the audience, never there could be a heart prouder than mine. Maria greatly admired Mills as an artist. Her blackbird singing was like a nightingale. Her dancing was also divine. But the pride Maria Davis felt was the race pride of seeing a woman of color successfully performing on stage. As a black woman, or as Maria put it, a color woman like yourself, she wrote to thank Mills and the entire company for being able to show the white people who think we are nobody because we are color, that we can stand side by side and beat them at their own game. Before signing off, Maria evoked the evolving ideas of the African diaspora in praising Mills once more, this time as a daughter of the motherland. So these three letters from an unnamed poor white man, a woman unpacking her first experiences of lesbian desire, and Maria Davis finding a way to challenge white racism are all heartfelt and personal, but although short and intimate, all draw out a number of the broader themes that drawing over the color line intends to address. The hardening of racism or the color line in Britain between the wars, the importance of the arts, particularly popular culture, in the formation of black identities and challenges to racism, the developing formation of ideas around the African diaspora and the intersection of race, sexuality and desire and the important role of black cultural expression in the making of popular culture in its broader sense in Britain in the 1920s and 1930s. Florence Mills directly links individuals black and white to the Harlem Renaissance, but there are similar stories to be recovered and reconsidered which were made much closer to home. So these are two portraits of Helen Yellen, a woman who performed in the Harlequin Cafe on Bleak Street in Soho, and the picture on the left is um, set in that cafe. Remembered for her jazz renditions of English songs during the 1930s, she also visited Antwerp with the Austrian novelist, novelist and journalist Hilda Spiel. Spiel recalled her as Egyptian in her memoirs, and in William Roberts' beautiful portrait of her, which I think is at the moment still my favourite that we've um, found with the project so far. But in this portrait, she is known as the Creole, 
Where she is from is still unclear, and we're hoping to find out more about her if she was born in Britain and how her life intersected with other black people in London. But by picturing her in the Harlequin Club, we see another place like, which, like the Shim Sham, provided spaces for non-conformist lifestyles. And visiting these places and rethinking about the relationships made and sustained within them is one of the key things we hope to do with this project. So in doing so, we clearly hope to map the biographies of men and women who experienced these cosmopolitan spaces in London, be it through photographs of celebrities, their own work as models, their own artistic practice, or political, sexual, and other convivial relationships. And many examples of the artworks that reflect these histories um, are the way that we hope to get into these spaces, but many of them are still to be found. So Gemma has been in touch with one of Helen's descendants, and we know that there was at least one more portrait of Helen um, somewhere, but we've no idea at the moment where it is. So we're hoping that people might be able to help us find them. And on the 20th of October, we're having a project which is part of the Bloomsbury Festival um, to encourage people to have a look in their attics and see if they can find some of, um, some of these lost items. So if you um, remember back earlier, there was a picture of Florence Mills in a peach dress. We know that existed, but we don't know where the original is. That picture's of it from a magazine. So perhaps you have a former art student in your family, your grandmother or your great-grandmother or your mother. Maybe you could ask them if they have something in their attic that might be relevant to their, our project. We're interested in the very ordinary, the very simple, from sculpture to photography to just sketches, if that's all we have. And of course, we're very interested in arts of work created by African and Asian artists as well. And really, two item is um, too small. If an item is very big, then I guess we can arrange to come and see it. But please do get in touch with us if you have something that you think might be relevant. If not, and if you can't come along next week, then do please keep in touch with the project via our blog and via the Equiano Centre website and Twitter, where we'll be putting up um, updates on the project and hopefully eventually, um, about sometime that next year, this time next year, we'll be launching a database of all the items that we've recovered, which people will be able to use in their own research. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline, for a really thought-provoking and exciting and important project for UCL. Um, we've got a few minutes for questions. I don't know if any, would anyone like to put a question to our speaker today? We have one at the back. Just hold on. Here's, here comes the mic. Hello. Um, I just wanted to know if there was any link between the Equiano Centre in UCL and the Equiano Society that's been around for quite a while. Yes, yeah, so Arthur Torrington, who runs the Equiano Society, is, um, I guess, a friend and colleague of mine. So, yes, we know each other. There's no direct link. And um, the reason it's called the Equiano Centre here is, well, for lots of reasons. Obviously, people know Equiano really well. But um, there's a very, very distant connection with UCL in that part of the UCL campus um, is on the site of somewhere that he used to live. The original house isn't there, but it was a link. And when we were setting it up, we wanted a name that, that people would connect easily with the project. So that's why I got that. I just wanted to double check the tragic information that I think you said that there's no recordings of any kind of 
No, not that um, we know of at the moment. Um, I guess partly it's quite early, um, and partly, I guess, those things aren't recorded. I mean, she's becoming more popular, and I think people, obviously people are very interested in jazz, and, you know, the interaction of jazz, and people have done a lot of work on that, and I think people are always looking out for, for things. Um, certainly, there's nothing of her performances in the UK, sound recordings, um, that we know of. And as yet, I still don't think they've found anything in the States, but that's not to say there isn't anything to be found. Maybe, maybe someone in their attic somewhere has something. That would be great. Any other questions? If I could maybe squeeze one in my own. Um, I mean, the Slade archive is quite an extraordinary thing to have that amount of material going back through a department. Uh, in the Bartlett, you know, it's, it's something that we talk about all the time. We're very envious of it. Is this project going to branch out into other bits of UCL? Or, um, and if so, how? <laughs> well, ho kind of hopefully, then, Anne Welsh and I are also um, working on a very small scoping project called The World of UCL before 1948, where we're trying to look at um, the diversity of students here at UCL. And at the moment, that's particularly looking at law and um, medicine. So we're working on trying to do that, and I think there's certainly stuff there. We certainly know that African and um, particularly Indian students were here studying law and medicine in the 19th century. So hopefully, if we can illustrate that there's stuff there, it would be something, a sort of a way to think about UCL. We always talk about this, you know, that UCL was the first university to admit people, you know, without regard to, to race and class and so on. But actually, the history of that isn't particularly well known within college, so it would be great to be able to do some more work on that across the board. Well, that sounds that's really, really wonderful. I wish you all the best of luck with that. Um, just before we go, if you could just one more round of applause for our speakers. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>